trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello again, Patriots. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington, once again, taking over the Access to Excellence podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, who's actually an old friend and one of the most innovative and impactful agents of change in children's media. Kevin Clark is the director of original animation for preschool programming at Netflix. Prior to his work at Netflix, Kevin was a professor and the founding director of the Center for Digital Media, Innovation, and Diversity at where else? George Mason University. In addition to his academic work, Kevin has extensive experience as a children's media advisor and consultant. Though quiet and soft-spoken, and I know that this is in the task of things that I'm supposed to say, but I've known Kevin for more than 30 years. He is neither quiet nor soft-spoken, but I'll read it anyway because it sounds good. Kevin has been a trailblazing force for increasing programming for children of color and in his advocacy for more diversity in the media that children consume. He was a creative producer on the Netflix preschool series, Bookmarks, Celebrating Black Voices. If you haven't seen it on Netflix, it is a remarkably well-done program. After listening to this, you should pull it up and take a listen. He was also a co-writer on the short film Arthur on Racism and a consultant on Amazon's movie adaptation of Ezra Jack Keats' beloved 1962 story, The Snowy Day. His work has been nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Children's Program, and he has been honored by the White House as a champion of change for his efforts to increase access and diversity in STEM field. Please. Please welcome Kevin. Thank you. Wow. I didn't know who you were talking about for a minute. <laughs> oh, no. You knew who I was talking about. Look, it, this is, in my opinion, probably the best time that I know of, probably in all modern history, for black film. I just think it is a tremendous time. You're seeing movies and shorts and cartoons and children's media coming from a whole host of areas. It's just an amazing thing to see. You know, it's a bad thing in some sense that there's so much more on the television now to watch. There's so much more out there to engage and to and to gravitate towards that you got to have your priorities straight. That's all That's I can right. say. That's right. So let's start with some news. I understand that you recently announced your retirement from Mason. Initially, you left Mason in September on a one-year leave of absence to work at Netflix. And it sounds like you've made quite an impression there. What changed and what will you be doing? Initially, as you said, I decided to do a leave. But as I continued my time at Netflix, I realized that I was where I should be. And it was the logical next step in my career. And I just wanted to be fully in the Netflix universe. And so I decided to go ahead and retire from Mason and leave that chapter behind and really focus on beginning the new chapter at Netflix. And so what I'm doing there is is I'm part of a preschool team where we are focused on creating and presenting content for a global preschool 
audience, not just U.S. focused. We're looking around the world for content and our audience is a global audience. And so with that in mind, we have to expand creators, expand content, expand stories. And so with that as a challenge, I'm super excited to be a part of the original animation preschool team. And I have a great group of people that I'm working with and a a really supportive organization. Oh, that's really cool. Really, really cool stuff. You know, (laughs) go back to the early days. It was hard to find children's shows that had strong images, that had reasonable images of black people. I mean, look, I remember back in the day, we had Little Rascals. I had Stymie and Alfalfa and Buckwheat. buckwheat. (laughs) I mean, that was it, man. You you wouldn't get too far beyond that. So when did this all change? When did we get to a point where not only do we have a plethora of shows, but the content is rich and expansive? And when did this happen? Is there a particular time in history where you noticed that there was a change in the mood of networks and Netflix and Disney and all of these other entities to be more open to this kind of material? Well, I think actually it was as technology became more accessible and as people, and we saw this happen in the music industry, right? You remember records, right? So, oh, yeah. As do I. And so when the only way you could get your music out was a record, that was a bit limiting. And then when we moved to cassettes and CDs, we began to see more people participate because the medium allowed people to create and to share it. Similarly, in television, as we've seen broadcast media be supplanted in some ways by streaming, by YouTube and, and other platforms, people now have other vehicles to share their creative output. And so with that comes the diversity of content, comes the diversity of creators. And so when that technology became more commonplace, then more creators were able to step into that arena. But let's not talk about 10 years ago. Let's talk about five years. Something happened, I would say literally in the say five to seven yeah, year yeah. time window where it looked like the lid just opened and there is this different genres, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many different types of shows. You got multiple black shows competing against one another on the same night on network television right. even. Economics, I think, plays a a huge part in this. And so when movies and TV shows were able to show and demonstrate that they were economically sound, that they had audiences, and not just black audiences, but they had wide appeal, I think that turned the tide and networks and streamers and other media producers recognized that, oh, we need to pay attention to this. And it wasn't just relegated to one or two networks, as we saw in in the 80s and 90s and, and even early 2000s, but it became more uh, mainstream and commonplace. And so when the economics matches the fact that you can now make money 
everybody holds up Black Panther as the example. But people in the black community knew that there was an audience for a black superhero and there was an audience for quality content that featured people of color. And so I think it was just that other people were coming to that knowledge. They had the tools to expand it in a global way. One of the criticisms or one of the perceived criticisms was that, oh, black shows shows that feature black leads don't do well globally. Well, Black Panther just blew that out of the water. And so then that opened up another venue where now you have diverse products and properties being seen as global properties. And so that, I think, is where we are now, where we understand that most of the world is diverse, is people of color. And there's been a democratization of media, right? Exactly. You know, with streaming, all you have to have is the ability to access the internet and have enough bandwidth, and you can actually consume from all over, right? And and you can create from all over, you know, between YouTube and TikTok and all of these other platforms, you can be anywhere in the world Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. make a piece of media. You can create wherever you are. You can consume wherever you are. And so I think, as you said, that democratization has created a new resource and a new thirst for this content. Let's talk about our start. We knew each other back when we were teenagers, right? And, you know, we both attended NC State University. And back then, you're a computer science major. Is that right? Yes. I I was an engineering major. I went through engineering. I became a professor. I became an administrator. There's a straight line. Right. Right? (laughs) For me. Right. For you. (laughs) I took the long way. (laughs) It is not a straight line. And so somehow you devoted your life to examining the relationship between children and technology. This includes diversity in children's media, but you've also done it in the STEM fields as well. Yes. I actually know what set you on that path because we have a similar upbringing. Yes. But for this broad-based audience who we are talking to, talk a little bit about what set you on the path. So in high school, I took a class at the Career Center and it was how to program a little green turtle. And that touched me because I got to make something based on my commands. This program did what it was supposed to do. So fast forward to when I get to college, I had to pick a major. I initially wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to to be a computer science teacher. And so I decided to major in computer science And as I was going through my computer science program, I realized that I wanted to use computer science to convey information and or teach people. And so that then led me to minor in math ed, and then I went to Penn State and got a PhD in instructional systems. Fast forward to, so right out of grad school, I took a job as a game designer for an ed tech startup. And I did that for five years in California. And that, was pivotal to me because it showed me how when you make content, nothing is by accident. And so everything in a video game and everything in a piece of media is meticulously planned to convey a particular message. And so that kind of gave me this sense of, okay, you can create something that teaches others something that conveys a message. And then the last thing that for me drove it home was I'm the father of two. I have a, I have a daughter and a son. And both of them, my interactions with both of them pushed me to 
do more in issues of diversity and inclusion. My daughter, when she was young and I would read princess books to her when she went to bed, one day asked if I could read a princess book with a princess that looked like her. And I thought, oh, this she is, asked that. She asked that because all of the princess books that I was reading to her had white princesses. And so she said, Daddy, tomorrow, can we read a book that has a princess that looks like me? So did you go get a crayon? <sighs> <laughs> I drove an hour from Arlington, Virginia to Baltimore to get a book from a museum, an out-of-print book that featured a black princess. And then my son, my son, we were having a discussion about right and wrong. We said, people who do bad stuff go to jail. And he asked me, had anybody in our family ever been in jail? And that was the moment where I realized I had not really had the conversation with him about my father, his grandfather, who was one of the spokesmen in the Attica uprising. And I realized I needed to tell that story to him from my perspective and not rely on what you may see in the media or what you may see in history books. And so I created a digital story, a short digital story, to share that information with him. And I had to hold on to it for about a year until he was ready, because it was a lot. And finally, when he was ready, I had to sit him down and show him, because he had a lot of admiration for my father, his grandfather, as most grandkids do. And I had to tell him, this is what your grandfather participated in. And so those two moments demonstrated two things. One is that representation is important. Kids need to see themselves in the media. And two, it is important who tells the story. Because when you look at the stories and how Attica, the uprising, the bloodiest prison riot in American history, how that is told, and then I have to then layer on top of that that this is your grandfather, it needs to be told with context. And so it's important who tells the story also. Oh, man, that's deep. Wow. So, so this is really interesting because one of the things I've recognized being here as president, and I get to talk with more and more faculty, and as I engage more faculty, the breadth of excellence that's here on our campus, it is just phenomenal. Not that you wouldn't expect there to be smart people here. The depth of that excellence and the impact that that excellence is having, not just on a regional scale, but on a national and global scale, is spectacular. You know, when I was faculty here, I would say faculty are the best kept secret in this region because we do, we do so much. I mean, this faculty did amazing, amazing work and they just had the nose to the grindstone and kept plugging away and they didn't look up, but right. they were doing the work that needed to be done. But this connects directly to the point that I think you're making. We have to actually be better here at Mason in terms of telling the story. Yes. Telling our story, but also telling the story of the impact that our faculty are having. That's why I took over the Access to Excellence podcast. <laughs> that well, was the whole point. Because I was reading about this stuff and I kept talking it. Nobody knows. Right. And, right. and so I said, I got to do something. I got to yeah. figure out a way to get this out in the media so that people can consume. And now what's happening is now I got folk contacting me. You got Kevin up there, but I did this. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, okay, this is exactly what we need, right? And I got content now. We're lining up content for another year and a half, which is a good stuff. Yeah, that's a good sign. And as you said, the faculty 
are amazing. Mm-hmm. They're doing, you know, you have Wendy Manuel Scott doing amazing work uh, regarding history. You have people in, in the film program. And I think what's unique about Mason is the willingness of faculty to work with each other across discipline. And mm-hmm. so when I was mm-hmm. here, um, even though I was in the College of Education, I would go over to the people in film and say, you know what, we need to figure out how to work together. Or go over to engineering, we need to figure out how to work together. And the faculty are so open and so willing to cooperate that they create this microcosm of people doing good and people having transformational impact. This is real cool. Well, speaking of impact, tell me a little bit about bookmarks. So bookmarks, Netflix came to me. I had actually pitched a show to Netflix a show based on the book I Love My Hair, which was written by Natasha Tarpley. She had contacted me and wanted me to help her turn her book into a kid's show. And so I worked with her for about a year. Then we pitched that show to any and everybody who would take us. Netflix was one of the people who we pitched it to, and they passed on it. But then they came back to me and they said, you know what, we have this idea for another show, and we think you could help us implement it. And this was in June. And I was in a place where everything was going on in the country. And, you know, George Floyd had just been murdered. And this was real recent. This was real recent. Okay. And I felt like I needed to do more. And I said, what is my superpower? What can I contribute to all of this? And I said, my work in children's media. And so I actively made it a point to do more work in children's media. And so Netflix came along and they said, we have this show idea, can you help us? And they said, what we know or what we're thinking is we want to have prominent people reading books to kids that focus on social justice issues. And so I took that kernel of an idea and created a framework around that. We call it the URGER framework. It stands for um, Identity, Respect, Justice, and Action. We use that framework to select the because we didn't want to just pick books randomly. We used that framework to select the books, and then we paired the books with prominent people to really tell the story of the black experience, to communicate issues of social justice in a way that was appropriate for kids. And that's interesting. The other advantage of that is the people you chose were highly recognizable figures in media so you're just attracted to them right. just because you say, oh, here's Tiffany Haddish. Let me see what she's saying. Right, right, right. right. And Pretty that cool. was one of the things I had to learn um, being at Netflix. Initially, when they said, OK, who would you want to read these books? As a professor, I was naming people who. Like me, right? Yeah. You said me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, you know, Dr. Washington <laughs> would be like, who? They were, <laughs> I was like, he would be really good. <laughs> And so they said, no, think globally. And they said, if you could pick one person to read a book, who would it be? And I was like, you know what? Common. I like Common as a MC. He seems cool as a person. You know, if I could have one person, it would be Common. And they said, okay. And I said, what do you mean, okay? And they said, we already have a relationship with him. We can easily make that happen. And so what's interesting about Common in particular is that he was one of the first people to sign on to the project. And then he wrote a song. He wrote the theme for the song. He, there's a whole... And there's really? A, and there's a video that was created. Outstanding. So being at Netflix forced me to kind of think beyond. And so, yes, I could think, yes, I can get Tiffany Haddish. I can get Jill Scott. We can get Jacqueline Woodson and Misty Copeland. I mean, so... No, I, I, look, I saw some of the people you met 
that on that show. I, I got some questions <laughs> offline to ask you. That's <laughs> all. Anyway, it's a really, really cool project, yeah. I, and, and it's different. And that's what I like about it. It's innovative. It actually kind of has that Mason spirit to it. Yeah, it's innovative in simplicity, right? It's mm-hmm. how you want a child to feel at story time, right? And right. all of those readers, Grace Byers, for example, does an amazing job. She's for Empire. Yes, same I, one. I think that's her. Yes. Okay, she, right, keep going. She's amazing, right, in uh-huh. connecting with kids and helping them feel comfortable. And so that's part of the genius because we're talking about serious topics. No, I get it. But I get it's it. in a way where kids feel nurtured and supported and protected. You're now working with Dr. Ibram Kendi on a project for Netflix called Anti-Racist Baby. And when I saw that thing, I said, "Uh uh-oh, this... Okay, so tell me what it's about so, and, so, and how did it come about? Yeah, so Dr. Kendi's book is actually featured in Bookmark. Dr. Kendi wrote a children's book called Anti-Racist Baby where he lays out the nine steps to being anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And so when we saw it in Bookmarks, we realized, you know what, this needs to be expanded. And so part of this project is, and this is part of a larger deal with Dr. Kendi in that two of his books are going to be turned into documentaries. So Stamp from the Beginning and How to Be Anti-Racist are both going to be turned into documentaries for adults. And so we then are the preschool component where we said, okay, and we'll take his book, Anti-Racist Baby, and turn that into a series of shorts based on those nine steps. So if you think Schoolhouse Rock... Well, think the schoolhouse rock for being anti-racist. So will there be those, you know, the nice hooks? I'm just a bill. Would it be that kind of thing, too? Or we is it- hope so. It's going to be really focused <laughs> wow. on teaching people those nine steps, right? So no, I get it. It's, I get it's it. memorable. And, you know, music is going to be a huge part of it. I hope so, because truth be told, I learned the preamble to the Constitution yeah. by schoolhouse rock. We all did. <laughs> we all know what a conjunction is, right? <laughs> exactly right. You know, I, I, I won't even begin to tell you that that was the basis of my education growing up as a youngster in Harlem. As you know, we're doing a lot of work here on our anti-racism initiative. Let's talk a little bit about that in general. With your projects, you're going at this from a different tact, right? And so let's talk a little bit about this anti-racism movement. How can children's programming participate in this effort? Yeah, so I think the, the role that children's programming can play is unique, right? Because we have access to not only young people, but the people who care for them. And so the ability to be able to impact young minds early on so that you begin to model how people should be treated and how to be anti-racist to young people. And then the people who care for them get to see that impact directly, and then they get to actively participate in it. So for me, I see the role of children's media as really a conduit for helping to make these connections with and among people, particularly in a global setting. We saw with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement how it started here, but then it went globally, right? It was in Paris. It was in London. And it exploded. And it exploded in a way that people 
really connected with it because they could see it in their lives, in their communities. And I think what children's media does is similar, is that we create characters and stories that are special and resonate in your region, in your country, in your community, and they tell your story, right? And so similar to me telling my son about his grandfather, we can tell stories about things that are going on in Africa, in Asia, in Canada. So I think the key part of children's media is that we start young. In preschool, we we start at the youngest. But we then can build that trust and parents and caregivers know that we're going to give your children and the young people that are around you access to content that is going to be motivating, inspiring and engaging in a way that communicates who you are and what your community is about. Any thought about moving up the uh, age spectrum to uh, young adults, maybe preteens, teens? Yeah. It needs to be a continuum, right? For me, I am right now in preschool in terms of my focus, but I'm also very much interested in what middle, high school young people are exposed to, elementary, because I think we have to make the content that is authentic consistent, right? And so what young people see as preschoolers, they should see that same authenticity as elementary school students, as middle school students, and as high school students. As Netflix, we have a kids and family division where we focus. It includes preschool, so we go from the youngest to pre-adults. And so... So that that is a part of what we are doing. Do you think you could create a character that could span that time that's basically starting as a... Because you see these characters, they kind of burn out after a period of time, and it usually correlates to the main character becoming of age, right? You know, you see the Harry Potter series... (laughs) Yeah, you know, you looking at him like right. Harry Potter got a mustache, right. man. get old, you know. It, it, you know, and and, and you know, it just kind of it kind of wanes yeah. uh, with yeah. that because you're doing this through an animated framework. You have the ability to control age right. in a way in which other genres don't have. Could you take a character starting at second, third, fourth grade and take that kid? all the way up through middle school or, yeah. you know, and the like. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I think you're right in that animation does allow you to do that, right. to, to span that time. I think the challenge is because preschool is so focused on what children are doing between those ages of three and five that you would almost have to create almost like a spinoff, right? So you could have one version that is preschool and then the next version could be that same character grown up, but in another universe, right? Because preschoolers and elementary kids have different concerns. And then you could also spin it off again when you get older in terms of middle and high school. So the challenge is that you'd have to create a universe that is so compelling that would allow you to do that. And so, I mean, Marvel can do it, right? Because Marvel has characters that that span different 
age groups mm -hmm. and they tell different stories. Right. And so you'd have to create a character or character universe that could span those developmental stages. So I, I think it's possible. Well, if you think about it, it's very interesting. When I started watching the Marvel series with my kids, with, with my two boys, they didn't have a concept of superheroes like I did. And I remember going in my attic and pulling out a box of old comic books. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was surprised at how old some of them were. I had some single edition, oh, wow. you know, single letter. I mean, you know, it's like, it's Spider-Man 2. I mean, <laughs> you know. But I remember showing and sharing those comic books with them and saying, look, this is where these right. characters came from. Right. Even when I was younger than you, I was reading these. They were not on cartoons. There were no movies with these characters. And now you see them come full force and you're watching them as a, you know, they, that time they were preteens. They were watching them as preteens. And then all the, all the way up through their teenage years, right? Right. So I think there is a way mm -hmm. to do it. I saw the characters on a comic book animated entity, and then they then they move to the actual characters right. in real life. One thing that you highlighted is the different forms of media, right? So right. going from books to TV. When you're a kid, you can do that. Right. It, easily. Easily. Yeah. So in 2014, the White House named you a champion of change. And that was for your work on video game design to increase interest in STEM careers, as well as your work to increase diversity in STEM fields and media, right? right. And that's a great accomplishment. Did that point in time, was there a marked difference in terms of your acceptance to the community? Did that change things for you in any significant way? It was a validation. A lot of people who do this type of work, especially in diversity and inclusion, in the academic sense, were viewed as, oh, they're doing that diversity work or just right. that diversity stuff. And it was almost like a niche that people thought, oh, it's a trend that's going to go away. This is not really rigorous research. And to be recognized by the White House, for me, was validation that, yes, this work is important and this work has impact. And so part of the reason why I chose this work and, and chose to create a center was to create a community of people who were interested in this type of work so now they could be connected with other people who also had these interests. And because of that, we could expand our efforts and right. partner with each other, collaborate. My main collaborator is Dr. Kimberly Scott at Arizona State. And so she's doing amazing work on the other side of the country. Mm -hmm. But we basically came together as a Justice League and said, we're going to do this type of work. That's cool. And so I think now you see that there's a revival of interest in issues of diversity and inclusion in these academic and research areas that we had been doing for years and years. So it was validation. And it's nice to see that people are, are now engaged in that work. Well, we need some superheroes, and, and, and you're one of them. Thank you. That's really cool. You know, people who are mission-driven never quite feel like their work is complete. I understand this and many of the issues I deal with myself, but when will you feel like you've made real change? When can you sit back and say, okay, this is having the level of impact that I thought it would? I think when we begin to talk about content and talk about in particular children's media without these terms of diversity and inclusion and that they're just good shows and that it just so happens that a person of color made this show and that there's more 
people who are representative of the population involved in the creation, curation, and distribution of this content. And so I think when I see a more proportional distribution and involvement of people of color and, and traditionally underrepresented groups in the media industry and entertainment industry, then I'll feel better about it. But you know, still even today, there are not that many people of color in positions where they could green light shows. There are not that many people of color who are making shows. There are not that many right. people of color who are running networks, who are running streaming companies. So we still, we still have a ways to go. I hear you. So what happens now to the Center for Digital Media Innovation and Diversity? So unfortunately, I think that center is going to be sunset and okay. because I think it's run its course and the hope is that someone will come behind it and create their own entity and focus on work that is important to them. But I think what's interesting about centers is that they should evolve. Right. And in this case, this one is, is evolving out of existence and hopefully making way for other professors and, and researchers to do similar work, but in another form. Okay. So here's the big walking off the stage, the big question. You know, you, you, you've inspired me by what you said Netflix told you relative to who you wanted to get to read a book. Right. Right? right? So I'm going to turn that question on its head. Kevin Clark, where you see yourself, where you're going, if you can do one big thing in this genre or, or any that you're thinking about in your life, if you can do this one big thing, what would that be? I want to get it right here, recorded, so that 10 years from now <laughs> so we can go, go back and say... <laughs> you can hold me to it. <laughs> exactly. Remember when you <laughs> said. said this? If there was one thing I could do, and that would be to create a mechanism for people of color to readily develop and create content. Whether that means a production company, whether that means a streaming service, but I want to have an entity where you have an idea, you can have that idea developed, that idea can be created, produced, and that idea can be distributed to the masses globally. And so that's what I want to do. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, we're going to look forward to that, and I look forward to seeing those great outcomes. This has been a great conversation. I wish we had more time, but I have to bring this to an end. I would like to thank Kevin Clark, the Director of Original Animation for Preschool Programming at Netflix and Professor Emeritus at the George Mason University for having such a thoughtful and important conversation with me today. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, President Washington. I am President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.